everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. I think one challenge that a lot of e-commerce platforms have, but especially a marketplace like ours, is you can end up sort of drowning in data. And so it's how do you not just provide the data to the brands, but couple it with insights and sort of make it distilled and digestible. The shift toward online grocery shopping has been happening for years, but the events of 2020 have accelerated the process beyond what anyone could have predicted. But will it continue in the post-COVID-19 world? Nick Green believes so. Nick is the co-founder and CEO of Thrive Market, an online health food market that has been at the forefront of the online grocery trend from the beginning. Since Thrive first launched in 2015, the company has steadily grown to more than 900,000 members and hundreds of millions in sales, and they did it in an untraditional way. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Nick explains how receiving no's from more than 50 VCs nearly crushed the company before they found a unique new investment strategy. Plus, he explains why Costco has been one of the most influential companies to learn from in terms of structuring the membership experience and how to hack the supply chain so that you can provide a truly curated and personalized experience for your customers. He also divulges what the number one metric you need to look at is if you hope to build success for both your own private label as well as the partner brands you work with. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Welcome everyone to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder of mission.org. On the show today, we have the co-founder and CEO of Thrive Market, Nick Green. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you on here because I've been a member of Thrive Market for a long time but I didn't always understand how it operated. So yeah, I'm excited to dive into Thrive Market and your background a bit. And uh, yeah, I would love to hear kind of what brought you to starting Thrive Market. Well, first, I'm excited to be talking to you today as a Thrive Market member uh, and customer. uh, And as someone who I think exemplifies our typical members uh, with a growing family, an entrepreneur, uh, and with a lot going on and, you know, wanting to be healthy for you and your family. So um, that is our mission. It's uh, It's to help people get healthy, uh, stay healthy uh, and to make that lifestyle accessible to anybody. Yep. Uh, and uh, it's been a, a crazy ride over the last five years, and we're really just getting started. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. For anyone who hasn't checked it out, highly recommend, especially for the niche things where you're like, I really am looking for this kind of essential oil. And it's also good prices too. So, what did you do before Thrive Market? How did you come about founding that and getting into the world of e commerce and developing a marketplace of all things? Probably one of the hardest things to start. <laughs> 
Yeah. So um, I'm a serial entrepreneur and actually a serial social entrepreneur. So Thrive is a mission-based business, as I sort of uh, alluded to before. Uh, and um, really both the companies that I've started, the first one was an education company and then Thrive obviously focused on healthy living, uh, really came from my experiences growing up uh, in the Midwest. I, I grew up in Minnesota. I had a mom who was laser focused on two things, which was education for her kids and uh, and health for, for her family. That's a good mom. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the basics, right? The, fun, the foundational yeah. pillars and... And I, I saw how hard she worked for both, right? Figuring out the right public school. We actually open enrolled to go to a Spanish immersion school uh, when I was when I was in elementary school. Uh, so really making deliberate decisions there uh, when you know we, we wouldn't have been able to afford to go to a private school. And then around health, you know, in a in a place and at a time when there weren't a ton of options to find organic food, uh, certainly to find organic, healthy food at an affordable price. You know, my mom did all of that legwork, all of that research. And mind you, this is like back in the 90s, kind of pre, uh, pre-internet. pre Yeah, that's hard. Uh, pre-widespread <laughs> internet. It was, it was tough. Like she was reading books and, um, and doing her own research. So, you know, the, I didn't think about this at the time when I started my first company, Ivy Insiders, but um, it was really like her focus on education that caused me to see the opportunity um, to basically help other kids like me who, you know, had gone to public school, weren't from, uh, you know, the, the East or West Coast um, and didn't necessarily see, uh, you know, the, the college admissions process back when they were in ninth and 10th grade. You know, I took the SAT for the first time or I saw the SAT for the first time when I took it and got to Harvard as an undergrad and, and found out there were, you know, lots of my peers who'd basically been prepping for not only the SAT, but college admissions in general since they were early in high school. So you know, my first business was actually, it was called Ivy Insiders. And we were hiring Ivy League undergrads to go back to their hometowns all over the country uh, to help other kids uh, get ready for college, get inspired around college, and then uh, you know help with those all important standardized tests. And so that business grew very fast. Um, it, it it was a summer business where we'd send these kids, these undergrads home during the summer, and we had ultimately about nine hundred of them, so nine hundred branches around the country. Wow. And that would seed that would seed an online business during the school year where these folks would continue to tutor and work with their students. So uh, I started that as an undergrad. I was 18 years old, um, ran it for seven years. So three years after school, um, I, I describe it. I basically didn't leave a seven block radius of Harvard Square for seven years. Oh, my gosh. And the logistics behind that sounds insane. Uh, it was insane. It was insane. But it was, you know, it was my first foray into mission driven entrepreneurship where like, you know, I related personally to that problem so acutely and the impact that we were able to have on students um, to just give them, you know, to motivate them, to inspire them. And then, of course, to give them tools and strategies to you know, get over the hump. Um, if you're, again, a kid who gr- grew up on the east or west coast in a you know, major metro area, going to a good private school with like, you know, parents who'd all gone to college too. Uh, you probably, you know, this stuff is kind of taken for granted, but I think for a lot of people all over the country, um, understanding how the game works for college admissions uh, is, is a total mystery. Yep. And so that business was really fun. It was, it was, you know, really powerful and uh, inspiring for me to realize how, how personally meaningful it was, you know, it, it, it set pretty early for me, the template of entrepreneurship, not just as a way to like, build a business or, or make money or something like that, but also to do something I cared about. Yep. Um, and then, you know, the only thing more fundamental in education really is health. And like I said, that went back to me for to what went, went back for me to my, to my childhood as well. Um, so I sold IB insiders in 2011 
I came out to LA to work on a nerd out. I spent a year and a half doing that and had a great experience at the acquiring company Revolution Prep. I got to see a, a, an education business that was at greater scale, but also very entrepreneurial and also interestingly mission-driven themselves. Uh, so that was really cool. Uh, and then I was actually at a startup accelerator as an entrepreneur residence on the investment committee, doing a bunch of angel investing myself and sort of thinking through what my next thing was going to be when I met my co-founder. And he, uh, uh, Gnar, actually pitched me initially on investing in a concept he was calling ShopDrive, which was going to be Groupon for healthy food. And the, the business model was very different than where we ultimately landed, but the vision and the mission was exactly the same. And he, he actually grew up, uh, couldn't have been more different than my upbringing, but he grew up on a communal farm, basically a hippie commune oh, wow. uh, in, Ojai, in Ojai, California, um, but also with a mom who really was focused on healthy living and actually a community that was very focused on healthy living. So they, they were doing group buying uh, organic wholesale groceries back in the 70s, the 80s, the early 90s. And he always had this idea, and he was a serial entrepreneur too, but he'd always had this idea in the back of his head. Like, how can we bring the commune to the masses? Mm -hmm. And so he pitched me on this idea to do group buying for organic food. By the end of the meeting, I was pitching him on doing something together. And, you know, the, the rest is kind of is kind of history. That mission, which I, I remember crystal clear him saying, we're going to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone in that meeting. Like that is still, that is the line that's in our office. It's what we talk you know, to every new hire about. Um, and it's the, it's, the, it's the mission that inspires us to the business. That's amazing. I also think I just want to hear his story of growing up like he did on a commune. And, oh, he's, he's um, got, he's got a way more interesting story than I do. You know, I grew up in like in, in middle American suburbia. He was doing, you know, I, it just totally, totally different experience and, um, and really, you know, really cool to see the way that they were able to solve problems like health food access mm -hmm. in a creative and communal way. And, you know, it is, it's been the template for so much of what we've done at Thrive, not just in terms of the, you know, the business model and the mission, but the way we've thought about community and the way we've thought about our membership is more than just a utility. Um, like a lot of the values and the ethos actually come straight from that, uh, you know, that, that upbringing that he had. Yeah, that's really cool. So how did you start Thrive? Like you guys landed on the business idea. What were the first steps with you know, even thinking through like, okay, how are we going to buy things in bulk or get partners or like, what, what were the early days like? Yeah. So, I mean, it, like I said, it started with the end in mind and how do, how do we solve this, this problem of making healthy living easy and affordable for everybody? So we knew that was the mission. Initially, we saw the primary barrier, which I think I would still say is a primary barrier to uh, buying organic and natural products, basically being price. Mm -hmm. Typical markup is 25 to 50%. Uh, and for you know 95% of American families, that just literally prices them out of the market. So Whole Foods was kind of our touchstone in terms of what they had done with quality and with trust and with sustainability and sourcing. Um, but yet, you know, half of Americans don't live within driving distance of a Whole Foods. As I said, 95% can't afford the price premiums. So we really wanted to solve both the geography question, but more which, which inherently we did because we were going to be online shipping anywhere in the country. But more importantly, we wanted to solve that price problem. So the early days of the business were really around how can we figure out some way to get organic products to people at or below the price of conventional equivalents. And intuitively, when you think about it, you know, it sort of is crazy that, you know, highly processed, you know, food that is a combination of more ingredients, more complexity in the supply chain, uh, et cetera, 
costs less and is easier to get than like simple organic products that should be, you know, in theory, easier to, easier to create. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it all comes down to scale and it all comes down to uh, sort of what those supply chains look like. So what we, what we did basically was first say, how can we cut out as many steps in the supply chain as possible? So work directly with brands, um, sometimes work directly with, um, with manufacturers or even with, um, with producers. And then initially we said, we will take the, the commune model and like pool everyone as a group to get a wholesale account with these brands. And then that'll enable us to basically by cutting out the distributor, get to below, uh, below the price of conventional equivalents. Now the challenge with the group with that model was uh, nobody wants to wait two or three weeks while your wholesale order comes on every single item of grocery that you buy. Yep. And we should have thought about that immediately. It took us a, a few iterations of actually doing these group buying events to see that it wasn't really a, a long-term sustainable way for people to buy their groceries. Um, so we were basically kind of at, back at the drawing board uh, a few months into the business and looking at other models and, uh, and started looking at Costco. And you know, Costco is the, is the wholesale buying club. They also cut out steps in their supply chain, uh, go direct as much as possible. Uh, but then the key thing is they make their money from membership, which allows them to also pass along really significant savings to members on the product sales. So that's, that's where we landed. You know, we were fortunate that both of us had, had started and sold businesses before. So we were able to self-fund the business during that kind of initial iteration process. Uh, the interesting thing is we landed on that business model, like knew it could work. We, of course, had utter conviction in our thesis around like people in middle America, middle-class people, uh, working-class people wanting to get healthy. Uh, and we were sort of like, okay, we're off to the races. Um, and then we actually ended up having a hell of a time raising funds when we actually went out to, to, to pitch VCs. And so we, you know, our pitch just fell flat. And we were actually rejected by over 150 different VCs. Oh my gosh. Uh, we continued to sell from the business. And I'll tell you, there were points in that period where Gennar and I were like, you know, we can do this for a while, but we don't have you know, millions of dollars to pour into this business. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and there was, there was existential risk. Uh, so that was a pretty dark, dark time, especially given that we still had total conviction in what the business could be. Um, we ended up sort of, stumbling our way into a fundraising strategy by partnering with the influencers who we are already going to work with to promote the business. And we actually brought them on as investors. And, you know, in 25 to $50,000 chunks, we brought in this coalition of the willing people that were thought leaders in health and wellness, who understood the mission, who saw the opportunity and bet on us in many cases who had never made an investment in a private company before uh, bet on us pre-launch. And, you know, we raised about eight and a half million dollars that way. And, uh, you know, got off to the races. How did you, I was very interested when I saw some of your celebrity investors, like, and you can tell me if any of these names are wrong. I saw Demi Moore, John Legend, Tony Robbins. Like, how did you get in front of these people to make them even consider investing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I wish I could say, you know, I just like pulled them up on speed dial Got a little uh, DM or, or, or take some <laughs> sort of credit for some like master strategy. Honestly, it, you know, it was a snowball effect. And we started out with influencers who were people, you know, most people haven't ever heard of, but have major audiences online and major credibility and authenticity uh, because of their thought leadership. And so these were, you know, on channels like Instagram and YouTube, bloggers who, uh, who were connected to other influencers who were in turn connected to other influencers. And it sort of spiraled up and out till you know, all of a sudden we were actually talking to celebrities 
Um, so it was, um, you know, it was really am- amazing again to see the power of the mission where once we got in front of people that understood what we were trying to do, who cared about it as more than just an investment that was going to drive financial return and who, you know, were committed to the mission themselves, it was like just a night and day difference, right? There wasn't like the skepticism we saw with the VCs. Instead, it was, you know, how can I get involved? How can I help? Who else can I tell about this? And it was sort of, it sort of foreshadowed too what we ended up finding with our members, right? Where when, when people find out that they can get healthy organic food at or below the price of conventional equivalents, that they have a platform that is purpose-built for making that process easy, you know, they, they want to share it. And that's been a huge, I guess, it's been the part of our success on the membership side. And it was, you know, essentially our, our accidental fundraising strategy. I love that. So earlier you were mentioning Costco and it reminded me, I was just reading a really good newsletter um, thread about Costco and how they convince brands to essentially kind of cannibalize themselves. So for instance, if they, you know, are selling Starbucks, they will also sell coffee right next to Starbucks and it'll actually be Starbucks maybe making it. And when they partner with these brands like that to create their own Kirkland um, signature line, it's oftentimes the same company, like a Starbucks or something, who's making that product. And then Costco will also ask them to make the product 1% better. Is there anything that, like you said earlier, you were looking at Costco when it came to like building up the strategy, at least on the membership side. Is there anything else around their business model like that, where you kind of are watching what they do and learning from them and then maybe, you know, going to your brands and saying, okay, make a Thrive Market version as well. You can still sell, you know, your name brand on here, but also make one for us too. Yeah. I mean, this is a really, really good question. And honestly, I could spend the rest of this, uh, <laughs> this conversation just talking about Costco. Yeah. Um, I, I'll truly... link up this thread. It was really good. And also very interesting, like, oh, I should choose Kirkland brand more often because it's the same exact product and everything. And oftentimes a little bit better. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, anyone that is any entrepreneur who is interested in retail, e-commerce, um, you know, membership models, customer centric, uh, business models, uh, employee centric, uh, business models, values, like they are the touchstone. Costco mm-hmm. truly is an incredible, incredible business with a very powerful business model, the core of which is membership, but there's so many other dimensions to it. And the one, and so we, you know, we again, like stumbled into, understanding and studying Costco because of membership, but we've actually used them as a touchstone in a bunch of different ways. And the private label program is definitely one of them. And, you know, we, we call it private label turned on its head because when people typically think of private label, they think of like kind of the compare to product that's going to be, you know, from a slightly, you know, crappier manufacturer with you know worse packaging, a little bit lower quality, but a slightly lower price tag. And Costco really changed that. I think the other the other uh, retailer that's really changed that is Trader Joe's. Yep. Um, so we look at both of them as kind of those examples of real innovators on on private label, where their brand is actually trusted as much, if not more, than the third party brands that are in the site uh, that are in the in the store. And to your point, they oftentimes actually work with their third party brands as the partners to develop these products to up level quality to do, you know, customized case packs and, and sizing and packaging uh, for their stores. And they get a bunch of efficiencies for the business that way. And then they're also able to really be responsive to the specific needs that they're, uh, in the case of Costco, that their membership base has or in Trader Joe's, their, their shoppers. And so, yes, that's, that's exactly the model that we take on our Thrive Market brand. 
that has been the fastest growing portion of our catalog. It's the best reviewed set of products on the site. It's the highest reordered set of products on the site. And we've now started to really blur the line between being even a re- we're a retailer still, obviously, but also being a brand because a third of our sales are coming off of you know, basically the 10% of our catalog uh, that is our own brand. And that's because our members have invested in membership. They trust the Thrive Market platform. We do you know, just act right and pursue our values and raise quality standards so that trust continues to build. Um, and then to your point earlier, we work with the third-party brands in many cases or whatever co-packer or co-manufacturer we're working with to be really, really responsive to what do our members need in this product and how do we go above and beyond what their expectations would ever be. You know, Because we're a retailer, we have so much more data than a typical brand would have in terms of member feedback, in terms of purchase patterns, in terms of like what, what products are selling in that category, what are the gaps in that category, what are the dietary trends. And so you know, we basically are batting a thousand on our private label products. Uh, and then you know, I think you're sort of alluding to this too, because we're working with our brands, instead of it being an us versus them, where like our private labels undermining the brands, we actually see the brand sales in many cases go up when we launch our, our Thrive Market branded product. And in many cases, it also allows us to curate the catalog further. So we'll cut out some of the products that maybe weren't doing as well. And for those that are remaining, even if we're not using them as a co-manufacturer, they'll actually see their, see their, their, uh, their sales go up. So you know, it's been a core part of our strategy. The other part that we really followed Costco's lead on, which I just mentioned, is curation. You know, you think about the Amazon model of the everything store; they're trying to always expand the SKU set, have as much uh, choice as possible. If, if you go on Amazon and you search for almond butter, you'll literally find forty thousand results. Yep, spend like two hours going through reviews, like which one is exactly the best trying almond? to figure out what's what's right. And so we've taken the opposite approach, which is exactly the same as Costco, right? Where they say we're going to have 5,000 products and it's going to make our backend operations really efficient. It's going to allow us to really focus on our purchasing power with a select number of high quality brands or vendors. And it's going to allow us to build trust with our members that they don't have to sort out which of these 40,000 options is better is best. Rather, we've done the work for you. And I think in healthy living, that is especially important because the trends are changing so fast. People are intimidated. Um, oftentimes they don't know where to start and to be able to come on to thrive after you just found out that you have a, you know, gluten sensitivity or you have a child with a nut allergy and, you know, click one filter and the entire catalog personalizes to you, you know, the number of the kind of feedback that we get from members is like, this is like, you know, it's a dream. Like you're saving me hours and hours of time that what I was, that I would have spent reading labels and doing my own research and, and having to do all this this hard work that you guys have done for me. Yep. Yeah. I love that. I was just thinking uh, two days ago, I probably spent an hour going through blog posts because I have twins and the feeding schedule is getting a little bit crazy. So I'm like, oh, maybe I should supplement a little bit of formula. And I went through probably 10 blogs trying to figure out a healthy formula for them. And it seems like there actually are none in the US and all the good ones are in Europe and uh, Switzerland and yeah, overseas. How do you think about finding some of those brands, because it does often seems like, it seems like the U.S. does not have as high of standards when it comes to, you know, FDA approvals and what's actually good. And I appreciate that you guys, you know, can step in and say, here's what's good, here's what's not. But how do you find those products on your own? We've really taken it upon ourselves to first say, what are the right standards to have? So for example, on on GMO, like we've simply taken the stance that we will not bring on 
any food products that have genetically modified ingredients. And it's not because we have some like, you know, inherent opposition to genetic modification. That's a whole different debate. But it's the fact that 95% of GMO uh, genetic modification in the US is to basically make crops resistant to glyphosate, Mm -hmm. which is a carcinogenic chemical. So we start by saying, all right, let's like put a line in the sand on our quality standards. Things are going to be non-negotiable like non-GMO. Um, then we do the same kind of research that you're, that, that you're doing. Um, but we have teams of like experts who are dedicated to it, who are looking at each category and saying, all right, what are the specific standards that we have to look to in this category for baby formula? What are the things that matter? What are the ingredients that it shouldn't have? What are the things that it should have? What are the best practices from a sourcing supply chain? I can be your expert now. <laughs> I, like seriously, you like, and you're, you're you, like, you've spent the time. You're probably more of an expert than 99.9% of the population. And it's, and like our goal is for that other 99.9%. All right, let's have the options on there that are, that are really good. If, if people don't have the bandwidth or the sort of ex- experience or background to do the research themselves, it's, uh, it's been really, really interesting to see that trust where people can outsource their, you know, outsource the research to us. And the standards really do end up being different in each in each sort of vertical or each category or subcategory or product type. Some of them are really really hard, um, like like baby formula, uh, because you're balancing like how can we make it affordable? How can you get find something that's going to be shelf stable? Um, how can you find something that's going to be scalable? So have a supply chain that can actually scale, and and then of course like still hit the quality standards. But uh, but we've been we've been we've been pretty successful at it so far in a lot of different categories, and then we also allow people to within each of those categories. As I said, we have 150 different metadata categories that we tag every product on. They can actually search by the things that matter most to them. So if they have a specific allergy, or they're specifically focused on fair trade, or they're specifically want to support uh, women-owned businesses, or whatever it might be. You literally click a filter and then, you know, basically empowers the the user or the member to shop by their values. Yeah, that's great. I think the idea of curation is only going to get more important as more products come online, more D2C companies are launching. Like you need that trusted source to be able to say, we've already looked into it for you and you don't need to spend five hours on a blog looking into that. So that's amazing. Uh, earlier, you mentioned like you have a lot of data, of course, that you're collecting all the time. Do you ever share that data with your brands? And if so, how do you go about that to you know keep the privacy aspect, but then also give your brand something to work with to maybe improve their own products where you're like, every time you sell this one kind of espresso bean, you always get a three-star review versus this other one, you know, you get a five-star. Maybe you should look into that. Yeah, that's a really, really great question. And and it's one that we're we're super, super focused on. I mean, we basically our approach is be totally transparent with the brands on all of their data and then find ways to anonymize data to give them insights you know, more broadly on what's happening across the platform. I think one challenge that a lot of e-commerce platforms have, but especially a marketplace like ours, is you can end up sort of drowning in data. Mm-hmm. And so it's how do you not just provide those, those, the data to the, the brands, but couple it with insights and sort of make it distilled and digestible. Um, so, you know, one of the areas that we really focus is, is marketing, um, and the kind of marketing dollars that brands put into, uh, promoting their products on site. You know, if you think about that in a brick and mortar environment, it's, it's sort of a black box. Like you don't know whether that promo actually worked. You can do different lift tests and like, you know, sometimes there's going to be some feedback provided, but it's, it's much more art than science. 
Um, and I think, you know, that like kind of opacity makes it really hard to lean into the spend. We have a lot of brands that over allocate marketing dollars towards Thrive because they can see exactly what that impact is. And we have the ability to, you know, track that digitally. And then we share with like pretty, a uh, high degree of uh, specificity and, you know, controlling for incrementality, what's actually happening so that they can know their ROI, um, you know, sort of down to the dollar. Wow. And that kind of, that kind of visibility is really powerful. Now, what you were asking about in terms of insights on, you know, what products are working, like we're doing that all the time. And that's, you know, our category managers, because they don't have, you know, 60,000 non-perishable SKUs, you know, having an order of magnitude, fewer SKUs, an order of magnitude, fewer, fewer brands that we have to serve means we can spend more attention with them, which, which again, means we can not only provide the data, but we can help them interpret that data, analyze that data and then draw real insights from it. And I think that's like that that's part of the reason that the brands work with us. Like when I look at why we've become the go-to launch platform for the most innovative new brands, why the leaders in the natural, you know, products industry are launching new products on Thrive first and giving us exclusives. Part of it is they align with the mission. They like what they like what we're doing. They know that we have almost a million members who are all, you know, really uh, passionate about the lifestyle. Um, but I think part of it is that we can do things on our platform that you just can't do uh, in a brick and mortar environment. And, you know, some of that comes down to storytelling and just the way we position and present the brand. But a lot of it, back to your point, comes down to being able to provide them data and insights and real transparency and visibility where they feel like they can control their destiny. Yeah, that's great. So for the marketing campaigns, I didn't even think about you guys setting up your own, you know, marketing channel. What kind of metrics and insights are you giving these brands that they aren't getting elsewhere? And maybe what should they be looking to get from, you know, other platforms? I mean, I'm sure they can't go in demand. Like, I want to see this metric because Thrive Market gives it to us. But like, what are you showing that they normally can't get elsewhere? That's giving them that peace of mind and transparency. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is incrementality, right? Like at any given time, there's going to be so many different factors that can affect what's happening with the sales of a brand or a product. And those factors can be things like seasonality. They can be things like growth in our membership base. They can be things like COVID-19. And so when you have all these different layers of kind of volatility in a brand's sales on site, you know, it's hard to know whether that promotion that you did actually had an impact. And this is the same issue that they have if they're selling in Whole Foods or any other retailer. It's like, I can run a promo. You know, I can look at the lift pre and post promo in the overall brand sales but there's all these other factors that happen. How do I actually adjust for those? And so incrementality, as when we think about acquisition marketing for new members, incrementality is everything, right? And when these brands are spending incremental dollars, they want to think about incrementality too. So that's the number one metric. And the way that we're able to do it is by having good attribution. So when we send out an email, we can see every person that clicked on that email. We can know whether that click then, then drove to the purchase And we can say definitively, right? Not just that this person purchased after the promo was sent, that this person purchased after clicking on that exact promo. So that's, you know, that's one example. And, uh, and then what we're able to do is then tease out and actually tell them like, this is your return on ad spend in a way that is actually credible versus, you know, attributing everything that happened during that period to the promo. Got it. And how do you control for more like environmental factors or larger things like you mentioned COVID? How would you control for that when it comes to showing incrementality? 
I mean, part of it is you can, you can, if you're looking at the overall sales lift, you can adjust, you can look at, you know, sales lift above and beyond what was happening in the category. And that's, you know, one easy way to do it. But more than that, for us, we actually look at the power of, you know, an actual, like the email that drove the promotion or click throughs on the banner or the ads themselves. Like if you walk into, if a person walks into a grocery store and sees an end cap, you don't have any way to know whether they actually saw that end cap and it influenced their purchase. If someone comes and clicks on a banner on our site or clicks through on an email that we sent on a promotion, like we have that tracked there, they've got a pixel and we will, we will know uh, and be able to attribute that. And, you know, look, you can say maybe that still isn't incremental. They would have purchased anyway, but it gets you a lot closer to true incrementality. Yep. So that allows you to not have to focus on just like uh, adjusting out all those other factors, which the truth is we, we can't know for certain, right? Like we have an idea of what kind of lift we've seen from COVID-19, but even to like, think about that one, you know, there's so many other factors at play. There's all the things we're doing internally to drive the business up. There's, you know, seasonal fluctuations that happen. You know, we have to, like some of it ends up being a judgment call, but the more we can provide the specific data and sort of the, you know, it's almost like a worst case analysis. Like we know these people that actually clicked are incremental. And if the ROI can back out on that basis alone, then everything else is gravy. And it just, it gives them a level of certainty to lean into the spend. And it gives us the, the power to really speak with conviction to say, hey, these promotions really work for you. And we don't have to feel like we're just selling them on something. We can feel like, hey, we're partnering with you to drive massive value for your business in a way that no other retail platform really can. Got it. Yeah, very cool. So when it comes to building out your website, I'm sure you guys have had a ton of iterations over the past couple of years. What have you seen works when, it, I mean, because you're a membership site, when you're scrolling through, like you can still see things, which is nice. So it's not like a complete, you know, behind the curtain is the only way that you can see what, what we actually have. Uh, but then after maybe right now, at least you click on it and then I'll say, okay, maybe you should think about a membership. And like, how did you think about building your website to get people to sign up for a membership, but also giving them enough you know, products and things to see behind the scenes so they know it's actually worth it? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And it's a, it's a balancing act. And to your point, it's been super iterative. We've, we've tested all different variations of that initial uh, you know, first user onboarding experience. And we've done everything from an open site to a hard reg wall to where we're at right now. We actually have a, an onboarding, we call it guided shopping quiz. So you don't actually, you know, most people that are hitting the site are not actually landing into the full kind of like unbridled e-commerce experience where they can like browse through all the, all the, all the SKUs. Instead, they come into an experience where they get a landing page that shares the value proposition and, and features of Thrive. They then click through and actually go through a quiz that, um, that takes, you know, five minutes to do, but gives us the information to give them, um, a curated, personalized set of recommendations to start. I think the general thing that we found is if you drop people right into an open marketplace, it can be overwhelming, um, yeah. especially because Thrive is a different kind of shopping experience. And for many of the folks coming in, they're you know new on this health journey. Like they may have just decided they want to pursue a keto diet, but you know they've never been on a site that allows them to search by to filter by keto, uh, or they don't know which categories of snacks are more likely to have keto products in them. So you know, giving a more guided experience where we you know, get some data, again, do something that would be physically impossible in a grocery store. 
Well, you couldn't go into a grocery store and have the whole thing suddenly reorganize to put <laughs> your stuff vegan. at the front. <laughs> exactly. But that's effectively what we're able to do. And it's a five minute, five minute quiz drives into a, a full data science model and, you know, uses like, you know, millions of data points on, on purchase behavior in the past from people that had similar answers on the quiz to give, you know, basically help you build your box uh, yourself. So, um, you know, from a kind of e-commerce's best practice standpoint, we've historically found that more open in a, is good if people have high intent and they know exactly what they're purchasing. More open is detrimental to conversion in a world where people are um, can be easily overwhelmed, or there can be, or there's real complexity, or they're new to the experience, or they need to get some education. So we have really biased towards a funnel that is more educational and guided in nature. You know, the cool thing about the quiz is that not only actually gives us data, but it also in the questions that we ask and the things that we share and the categories that we move through, it shares with the with the would be member more about what Thrive does. And so they get educated in the process too. Um, so, you know, not sure if this really answers your question, but I'd say um, our funnel has tended towards being more closed and more guided, but always in a way that is giving value to the member in exchange for value that they return. So like one of the things we don't want to do is be that place that like says, you know, we're a walled garden and we're not going to tell you anything about what we are and just like sign up and trust us. Yeah. Uh, because you will get some people that will do that, especially if you give them a strong incentive, but those won't end up being high quality members. So we also think a lot about, you know, what's the funnel that's going to not just drive that initial conversion to membership, but is going to create members who are going to be long-term engaged because that's what we're building. And we want to, we want to have a business for the long term. We're not just looking at clipping one year of membership fees. Yeah, that's so important. So how did you think about building the quiz, because I'm thinking I could see quite a few people. I mean, I think you mentioned it was maybe around five minutes. I could see quite a few people, maybe with lower intent, dropping off. How did you think about building it in a way that would encourage people to finish it? And what kind of, you know, conversions do you see when it comes to, or completions do you see around that quiz? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'll say there is your, your, your intuition is exactly what mine. And I think most people's would be on that, on that kind of quiz where it's like, you just don't believe that people would actually go through the whole thing, especially as it gets longer. Um, I remember I read a case study at one point on, I think it was match.com or one of these dating sites that has a, uh, a, an onboarding survey or questionnaire that takes, it's like 80 questions or something, right. To find your perfect soulmate. <laughs> like I give um, up. I'm single forever. <laughs> yeah. But no, but the, and you would think that that's the way it is, but actually like 90 some percent of people finish it. Wow. And, you know, I think part of it is people have to have a, an incentive. Like if, if there has to be a, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow kind of thing. And so, you know, obviously someone who's looking for the, the love of their life has a very strong incentive. Someone that comes to thrive, sees a lot of things they like on the, on the landing page, really wants to get healthy, um, has a real incentive to finish it. We see about 85% completion once someone starts the quiz. Um, and it's 18 questions. So it's not a, it's not a super short quiz. Like it goes by pretty quickly, but it's a lot of clicking some, some real thinking, like a little bit of cognitive load. And to be honest, we were totally surprised. Like we thought the drop-off would be significantly higher. And, uh, and what we found is it actually, to, to my point earlier, it builds, uh, it builds more trust and credibility. There's sort of a little bit of a sunk cost phenomenon where people are, they've invested now in getting through. And so then they are really determined to actually get some value, see their results, like, mm-hmm. et cetera. 
But there's also this factor of their getting educated about the platform as they move through. The questions that we ask implicitly tell them something about Thrive. You know, we're asking like, what are the causes that you care about? What are the values you want to live? What are the diets that you want to search by? Like as they go through those answers, they can see, wow, Thrive allows me to shop by diet. Wow, Thrive empowers me to shop my, shop my values. Wow, Thrive has beauty products too. Um, so we find it to be like killing a lot of, as a wrong analogy, but kills a lot of birds with a single stone. Uh, and we found that our intuition on many dimensions of the quiz was totally wrong. So it really has been just an iterative process of trying different things, you know, prompting the membership at different points in the, in, in the quiz, prompting the registration at different points in the quiz and, and just like kind of standard, uh, sort of growth hacking 101 to iterate our way to something that converts. But then always, like for us, one of the big things we, we, we talk a lot about internally is always having our human hat on. Mm-hmm. So if you're testing and iterating, it's very easy to like look, look at the numbers, um, sort of not be thinking about the fact that human beings are going through the experience. And you know, we find that the greatest antidote to doing something that will be short-term conversion driving, but long-term detrimental to the business is to put ourselves in the seat of the member and say, okay, is this actually a good experience? Does this will this feel good? Would I feel good if I were going through this experience? Um, because it is easy to, to, to test your way into something that will somehow squeeze more conversion out of the funnel, but you're squeezing out the wrong people. You're squeezing in maybe the, the wrong people too. Uh, and you're leaving a bad taste in, in, in a new user's mouth that affects their, their long-term interaction with the, with the brand. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. So how did you think about, I think you have a 30 day trial. Like, how did you think about having a free trial period? And then what does that retention look like? And how do you go about improving that number? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, thir- the 30 day trial for the first five years of the business, we did have a 30 day trial and hundred of people came through the 30 day trial yep. over the last nine months. And this kind of coupled with moving towards this quiz, this like guided shopping model, uh, we actually ended up testing into removing the trial having people sign up directly for membership. And we found that once they had like gotten to see more of the catalog, see the values of Thrive and, uh, and go through that quiz, uh, there was actually an, a willingness to sign up directly for membership. Mm-hmm. Um, so we now have an option to go through a trial for people that want to. Um, but like 90% plus of our members are actually coming through what we call our direct, direct to member funnel. Um, we still do 30 day risk-free on that. So you, you know, you sign up for your membership, but for whatever reason, you don't use the membership, you don't like it, you have a bad experience, whatever. Um, well, people can get the 30, their, their $60 back, but you know, our typical member bakes back their membership fee in two purchases, uh, in terms of savings. So it's, you know, about $30 average savings per order. And so we find really high conversion and we found that on the, the trial as well. Like we would have, uh, uh, historically in our legacy funnels, 60 to 75% uh, trial to paid conversion, which is sort of, sort of unheard of yeah, uh, for great. trials, which is, which should have been an indication to us. We may not need the trial. <laughs> um, and you know, now we see similar actually higher, it's like 75% of the people that, um, will start the membership. Um, you know, three out of four of them will, will stick with it, um, and have that, have that great experience. And basically everybody that places an order We'll stick with it. So the only people that are dropping out are, you know, they signed up for the membership, they took the risk free, and then for for whatever reason, you know, they didn't actually place an order at all. Yep. Yeah. It's another um, not to gush all over Costco, but another thing that reminded me of Costco a bit was the guarantee 
savings. So I think it's not the normal Costco membership, but I think the business one that I have says, if you don't you know, make a certain amount of savings or something, then you'll get your membership feedback. I can't remember what exactly it is. I just said, oh, that sounds like a good deal. Don't you guys have something like that as well, where if you don't make your savings back, we'll give you the membership feedback or something along those lines? Yeah, so we, we have two promises that we that we make to our members. Uh, the first, we call it our, our low price promise, which is that if you find a product uh, that we sell on Thrive anywhere else at a lower price, uh, we, will, we will beat it. So that just gives you that assurance that you don't have to be price shopping because we're doing all the price comparisons ourselves and making sure that we're always lower on every individual product. And if you happen to find one that's not, We'll, we'll go ahead and beat it on that price. So that's one. And then the second, which I think you're, you're pointing to is our savings guarantee, which just says, if at the end of the year, you haven't made back your membership fee and savings, if you renew, we will actually give you whatever that gap was in store credit. So if you only got $20 of savings during the year, um, that means that we'll give you, there should, there's a $40 gap in, to your $60 membership fee. We'll actually give you $40 of shopping credit in your, when you renew as a, as a second year member. And you know, that we think that guarantee is really important, not because very many people take it. They actually mm-hmm. don't. Um, because again, you only need two purchases to make back the membership fee. Almost everybody does. But, uh, the reason that we do it is, is for trust and for confidence to put our money where our mouth is and say, Hey, we're not looking to build a business that extracts value from you. Like we want to build a business that is non-zero sum, that delivers value to members. And that the reason that you're renewing is because you've got real value from, from Thrive Market. And you know, it's the reason why we have best-in-class renewal rates. And every year, every cohort is renewing at an even higher rate. And I think it has helped our drive our conversion too, because people can trust that, hey, I, I, it's risk-free for the first 30 days. And even if I go for the whole year, if I don't make that my, my savings, um, I'll be able to you know, make up the difference. Yep. Yeah. There's so many ways that make it easy to want to stay with you guys. So that's great. So with everything that's happening with COVID-19 going on and a lot of changes in the world of e-commerce, where do you see online grocery going in the future? That is a big question. Uh, and obviously <laughs> it's the, it is the question that we're thinking about yep. um, so much right now. Um, I think the first thing that's really important to understand about what's happening with COVID, and I would say specifically as it relates to online grocery is that COVID has not created a departure from the trend. It's really just accelerated a trend that was already happening. You know, if you look at the actual compounding growth rates of shifting to online grocery, it's like insane, right? It's double digit growth every single year, uh, but it's early on in that growth, that growth period compounding. What's basically happened with COVID is you've packed, you know, five years into four or five months. And you've gone from you know 10% of people purchasing groceries online to 40% of people uh, doing doing some of their grocery shopping online, um, and many doing all of it. So uh, I think the the you know, billion dollar question, as it were, is what how much of that will remain and how much will go back. And I think that if you if we had had two weeks of lockdowns, I think a lot of people might have like done an order online and then they're going to go back. But when you have several months, you now have a window, I think, for people to bake a new habit. And the reality is that online experience, if it's good, people will have no reason to go back. Uh, One of the challenges is these retailers are dealing with out of stock. So like, how do you do substitutes? I think there will be some fallout just because... Uh, just because the, the, that first experience may not be ideal. Um, but if you look at our categories, like we focus on non-perishable products, which are easy to ship, 
we you know have a less than one tenth of one percent error rate on the picks that come through. So you're always going to get exactly what you want. We now have a huge frozen selection of meat and seafood. Uh, we have a wine selection. We now have frozen meals, uh, like all these categories that you can get that aren't the complicated like fresh products that you know might not be ripe or whatever like like that. Mm-hmm. You know, people have a great experience, and when they have a great experience. They feel good about what they've done because they're you know, shipping with carbon neutral shipping and everything comes in one box. So you're not piling up a bunch of plastic to throw out like you do with an Amazon order. Um, then, then you retain those people. And so what we found with our cohorts during COVID is that they're, they're actually engaging at a higher level. They're retaining at a higher level. Um, and we expect them to basically behave at or above what previous cohorts have. And then we've also been seeing that our existing members that were using Thrive as one of you know four or five solutions to buy their all their groceries now are using Thrive as one of one or two, which is driving up engagement there. And I think that those I think that those patterns, given how long the the, the kind of quarantine period has been or the stay at home period has been, are going to be longstanding. Um, I also think that the shift of grocery online is only one of the trends. Like everyone's focused right now on all the things that are moving online, all the things that are moving remote, you know, work is moving from the office to remote grocery shopping and other shopping is moving from uh, brick and mortar to remote. But I think there's another trend, which is really relevant to us. That's, that's actually maybe even more profound. And that is uh, what I would describe as basically people becoming more conscious consumers. And I feel like the moment that COVID hit Everybody at some level became a conscious consumer. Everybody's focused on their safety. Everybody's focused on on staying healthy. Um, And everyone's thinking about trust and like, where do their products come from? And is this product safe? And is this product going to keep me and my family healthy? And so that actually is the trend that makes me most excited because that's, you know, that's people wanting to get empowered about staying healthy, not just doing those purchases online, but buying more from retailers that they really trust like Thrive Market. Um, and then I think one of the really interesting kind of side um, side trends of this conscious like rise of the conscious consumer during COVID has been people also thinking about not just their own health, but you know more broadly like the health of our country and the health of our planet, and like really seeing this incredible moment of like people sort of opening up their hearts and wanting to be part of the solution. Um, you know, we always have done donate at checkout where we let our members donate a portion of their savings if they choose to the shopping budgets of our Gives members. And when COVID-19 started, when the, when the pandemic started, we actually flipped the switch so that all of that would go to our COVID-19 relief fund, uh, basically providing grocery stipends for families directly affected. Um, and we saw our donated checkouts go up 9x. Wow. Um, so just the generosity of our membership base, I mean, one that it's inspiring, it actually inspired me to I decided to donate my entire salary for the remainder of the year I saw. to the to the relief fund. But it's also just like so indicative of the way people, you know, at this moment where I think people are at home, they're isolated, they in some ways feel helpless, they're looking at political polarization and all this stuff happening across the country. And they're saying, like, what can I do to not only keep my family safe and healthy, but also like help make this situation better more broadly. And so, you know, I'm really hopeful that that's something that will also continue. Um, and that it'll be extended beyond just helping those people affected by COVID to, you know, bigger, you know, bigger topics, uh, you know, more long term like you know climate change and environmental stewardship. Um, so, you know, that's that's the the trend we're betting on even more than than online grocery. It's it's the rise of the conscious consumer. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Everyone just had time to 
sit back and, you know, read on the internet and watch some Netflix series and things like that. And I think that it actually gave people a chance to dive into things that maybe they just didn't have a chance to do before all this, where they could actually, like I did, go into a thread about formula and watch a Netflix series all about water. And yeah, it's like getting, getting educated and then also having that time to reflect, right. And say like, what, how do I want to show up in this and how can I vote with my dollars? And I think it's really, to me, it's very heartening that when people have that moment, they come out saying, you know, I want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. I want to be, you know, on the side of change. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. And I wanted to ask how you set up your backend infrastructure to keep your brands happy. Like, how did you make it easy for them to, you know, um, like you to place orders from them or them to see sales or like, how does it look behind the scenes? Because we focused a lot on the consumer piece and that was the one part I was thinking of like, what do your backend systems look like for all your brands? You know, the approach that we took, which I think was pretty differentiated um, with our membership base was just to be hyper transparent around what was going on. You know, what were the challenges we were having in our supply chain? Why was it taking longer to fulfill orders? And how were we scaling up our fulfillment capacity while still keeping our fulfillment workers safe and ensuring that, you know, the products arrived to our members safely? Um, and so there's a, that was a whole exercise for us and kind of community building radical transparency. You know, I got out there and did like an Instagram TV. I'm not even an Instagram user, uh, but you know, managed to get out there and like spend 15 minutes talking directly to our, mem- our members about the different challenges that we were having and, and giving them, giving them a window in. And, you know, the same kind of communication was necessary basically with each of our stakeholders. So, you know, internally with our employees it was this, you know, huge exercise. And how do you, during a time when everyone is work from home and isolated and scared, like how do you keep people to, to keep people together? How do you create community? How do you be transparent uh, with what you know and also what you don't know uh, in terms of like where where things are headed? And then with our with our brands, the exact same thing. Um, you know, we have good systems for brands to self serve on kind of what's happening with their. Uh, with their with their sales, with their um, you know, performance of, of different SKUs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also do a lot of just like custom reporting, like I said, with every um, promotion that goes out. But the biggest thing, the benefit that we have, the biggest strength we have there is not so much the like bells and whistles on the back end you know, reporting um, as much as it is the fact that we have fewer brands, we can actually give them personal attention. And so our category managers were basically on the phone all day during COVID. And, you know, even pre-COVID, they're on the phone all day talking to our brands, you know, finding out how we can be helping them, giving them feedback and giving them insight. Um, and so I think we have, because of the curated model, had the opportunity to, despite getting to some significant scale, maintain that closeness of interaction and that personalization. And just like we're doing for our members, doing it with doing it with the brands and um, you know, I'll tell you that was uh, especially important uh, during COVID because you can have a great backend like reporting infrastructure uh, and you know self service platform, but if, when things when brands are trying to figure out what the heck is going on, that's not that's not going to give you answers. They better it's, be able to reach you. <laughs> they better be able to reach you, and they better be able to have a conversation. And look, you know, our brands had challenges too. Like they were struggling to scale their supply chains. We had major out of stock issues. We're still dealing with that, honestly, like some of the, like there's been an elevated sustained demand and the ability to have a relationship with each brand where, you know, they're keeping us apprised and being transparent with what's going on for them. And we're doing the same to them. I mean, it just, it like removes that friction and that barrier that I think can often happen when you've got brands and, uh, and retailers that, that don't talk. Mm-hmm. 
Is there anything that you learned from all of this that you're, or maybe like best practices that you saw happen with one brand that you're sharing with another to prevent, you know, out of stock issues or being able to help forecast demand better? Because I'm sure this won't be the first time this happens. What kind of best practices are you maybe sharing amongst your brands, if at all? That's a really good question. I think, you know, every brand has a unique situation right now. Uh, each category is unique. You know, there are some categories that have been affected five or 10% in either direction. You've got others that have been affected 5,000%. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that there's like universals. Uh, the probably the only universal is that things are, is like there is no universal essentially, right? That, that like things are unpredictable, volatility can happen. And, you know, they, we have to build our business and they have to build their businesses in a way to be resilient and ideally be anti-fragile anti is the, the term I like to use of like, mm -hmm. you know, being able to actually lean into the, a really challenging moment and step up and be a better version, you know, of what you normally do. And so, you know, for us as a business, that was on the mission dimension of like, hey, for us being anti-fragile is we already, we do a great job building a community. We do a great job with communication. We do a great job living by our values. Now we're going to do that and we're just going to triple down on it to make sure that you know, that is our source of strength during this trying time. For our brands, the challenge that they have is you know, they're dependent on their own supply chains. They have limited manufacturing capability. And you know, again, if you have a five or even 50% spike in demand, that might be able to be handled. But if you're you know, a brand that creates hand sanitizer or canned beans or flour, you know, or you do diced tomatoes that have a you know, year-long lead time from the harvest, you know, there just isn't much you can much you can do. So we have tried to work hand in hand with our brands for sure. We've tried to be patient with them for sure. Um, and then we've, you know, it's been a, a good exercise for us to like think about redundancy in our supply chain and making sure that we have partners that can scale and are going to be resilient, you know, while still obviously hitting our, our quality standards. Yeah, that's a great answer. Well, I'm pretty sure I could talk to you all day long because I have a thousand questions, but I also want to respect your time. So is there anything we missed before we jump into a quick lightning round? No, this is great. Um, I, I, I feel like you, you asked a lot of good questions and gave me a chance to pontificate at length. So thank you. I love pontification. Okay, great. So the lightning round brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. It's where I'm going to ask you one, one question and you have a minute or less to answer. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. I thought of a hard question for you. If you were to create a Netflix original... What would it be about? Uh, it would be about regenerative agriculture. Oh, tell me more. That is, uh, to me, that is the future um, uh, of food. And it is the way that food can be part of the solution on climate change. Um, and just so that for your listenership to understand, you know, organic, uh, organic farming creates less of a carbon footprint than traditional farming, but it's not necessarily actually regenerating um, and uh, sequestering carbon and having a net negative impact. And uh, for, you know, for those people that don't know, basically carbon emissions is what creates, um, creates global warming or the primary thing that creates global warming. Uh, regenerative agriculture is agricultural systems and models that actually sequester carbon, uh, regenerate topsoil, uh, and in doing so have a positive impact or negative, depending on how you want to talk about it, impact on climate change. And I think we are, we are past a point at this point where we just need to slow it down. We actually need to reverse it. And food, as you know, is a massive, massive culprit in our food system. And, um, and I think people don't realize how innovative, how scalable 
and how uh, impactful regenerative ag could be if we were willing to accelerate it. And there's so much cool stuff happening. I think if we could do a Netflix series that shows uh, shows con- you know more and more conscious uh, viewers in this case, but conscious consumers, what's possible, you'd have a groundswell of interest and support for regenerative ag. Oh, that's good. If anyone from Netflix is out there, hit up Nick. Sounds like that's my series. pitch. That's my yeah, pitch. There you go. <laughs> Uh, what kind of music do you listen to to get in the zone? Oh gosh, I'm you know I'm actually a like earplugs and noise canceling headphones kind of guy when I'm working. Okay. Utter utter silence. Um, you know, and I like to walk a lot. Like my my form of meditation is like is going out for a walk. I know I sound like I'm like 80 years old, but <laughs> hey, me I, too, me too. I it's for me it's like super super therapeutic. And then I will listen to music, and it depends so much on my mood. It can be everything from like you know, house electronic, if I wanted to like really let off steam and, and move fast to classical, um, to sometimes I just go silent too. So I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm classic ADD where like, if there's any distraction around, uh, it's, it's kryptonite to my work. So I've got yep. a, I've got a big thing of, of earplugs sitting right next to me right now. And I, you know, go through about 10 pairs of disposable earplugs every day. That's great. What health fact do you drop on people that surprises them? Ooh, um, you're at, that, that, that's, that's when I could have spent the whole hour talking about, I've, <laughs> I think like there are so, this isn't an answer to the question, but there are so many health facts that surprise people because so much of what we historically have thought of as healthy has been total misinformation. Mm-hmm. And I think more and more people now understand that like, you know, fat's not bad. Uh, yep. you know, fat doesn't make you fat. That's an obvious one. Um, but I think the, the, the one that I'm actually most interested in right now is the ways in which is the fact that what is healthy for humans is really also tends to be what's healthy for the planet and vice versa. And I mentioned this earlier, but I think people are connecting that more and more that if you look at um, products and food products, especially that are produced sustainably, those products will tend to be simple. They will tend to have low numbers of ingredients. They will tend not to have chemicals. Um, and those same things tend to make them healthy for, for people. And, you know, there's a lot of different debate and diets about like, what's the right macros? Like, should you be keto? Should you be vegan? But if you generally just stick with, if this product was produced in a way that was healthy for our planet, you will probably get to a place that uh, is also healthy for you as a, as a, as a human. I like that motto. Makes it a lot easier. What tool or technology are you most excited about either trying out or that you're currently trying out right now? And it can be a thrive or it can be personally. That's a good one. Tool or technology. Um, honestly, I'm a minimalist, so I'm actually always trying to reduce, like clear out and take away technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't use any social media. Mm-hmm. I had a, a brief, brief flirtatious relationship with Twitter early in the pandemic and like got sucked in, like li- literally I've never used, I don't know. Don't use Twitter. Don't use Facebook. Don't use Instagram. And I'm like, going to tag you, Nick. Oh, makes me so sad. Uh, I know, but it's, but I like the truth is I would be a total addict on all those platforms. I'm, I'm now convinced. Um, so I actually, you know, I try to reduce like tools and technology to, to the, to the maximum. Um, I think like, you know, the, if you're trying to do something, if you're pat, like what, what matters in your life and your ability to achieve those things will basically be a function of how much of the things that don't matter you can eliminate. I like that. That's a great answer. All right. The last hard one. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? I mean, I think that's it's sort of obvious. It's it's what's happening with the pandemic and COVID. 
And as I said, I think there's like, it's the thing that people miss is that this is not a departure. It's not some like orthogonal trend. It really is the acceleration of all these mega secular trends that were already happening. I think what's fascinating about it is you are concentrating already rapid trends like the shift of grocery online or the shift to conscious consumer uh, consumer attitudes. And you're concentrating like years of evolution into a few months. And I think the, you know, what that, the ramifications of that, what the new normal looks like, um, you know, what the different vectors are beyond just online grocery and conscious consumers, I think it's going to way outlast the virus itself. Um, And, you know, in particular with e-commerce, we're getting to see the future now. Like we are going to see 2030 and 2021. That's great. That's a good quote too. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining the show. It's been such a fun conversation. So many good insights. Where can people find out more? Not about you, apparently, on social media. Where can people find out more about Thrive Market? Yeah, you can't find more about me anywhere. But <laughs> Thrive Market is thrivemarket.com. Um, again, you know, first month is risk-free if you want to sign up for a membership. Um, if you're in financial straits or you're a teacher, a veteran, uh, a student, a uh, low-income family, you can actually get a free membership. Um, just apply through our Gives program. Uh, if you have anyone else that's affected by COVID uh, directly, they can also get free membership and a grocery stipend. Um, and yeah, check us out. We're also obviously on all the all the social media platforms. Cool. Thanks so much, Nick. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Stephanie. Really enjoyed it. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.